Last week we'd look at the life of Philip, uh, the deacon and evangelist, and following that story is the conversion of Saul, and I thought I'd go ahead and go after that at the same time. Remember at the stoning of Stephen, um, Saul was there, or Paul, and it said they laid the cloaks at his feet when they were going through this process so that it ought to have enough mobility to throw the rocks. They got rid of their outer garments. But in that, we're not, not real clear as to whether uh, this was done with Saul as the leader telling guys to do this or whether he was just, you know, watching the coats. It's not clear. But the very next portion that we see of his life as that he's a true adversary of the, the early church. And so he goes about, uh, it says he's ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. If you read Acts 22, it says he was putting people to death. And, and so you can imagine the chaos that, was, that this was bringing and can imagine a family just being disrupted and, and this guy's hauling off. But he's doing it all in the name of God. And so, you know, it's really important to understand that a lot of what's done religiously and done for God doesn't necessarily honor God. And there's a fine line to, to figure that out. It's, it's interesting to me, and I, I have a real possibility of getting distracted off on a rabbit trail now that I'd rather take later, but the idea that he would have to sort out what had been religious in his life, what had been useful but not truly God-honoring or, or suitable, is something that we, he was going to end up spending years sorting out. In fact, uh, there's, if you read different passages, there's a three-year gap in his ministry and then a 14-year gap as well. So 17 years that he's kind of off uh, after he becomes a Christian where he's kind of out of the scene. And so to me, there was a lot of sorting out going on of what was, what was truly godly and what wasn't, what was the application of God in his life. Um, so it says he's, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So he's not content to do it in the Jerusalem area, but he's going, this is a thing that needs to be taken out to the rest of the world. Wherever these people have spread, we need to take care of this. He has a missionary heart, even though it's not focused in on the Lord at this point. He has that outreach view. He has the training that's already allowed him a, a, a number of travel experiences. And he is zealous for, you know, getting the word out and, and moving others, but it's done in a profane way. So it's like the gifts are there, the ability to move others and to witness and to go out. It's, it's all in place but it's bearing disastrous fruit. So, now this said, he, it goes, he goes on his way, he sees the bright light, he falls down, and he goes, Lord, who are you? Now, 
we tend to look, well, Lord's just a New Testament term. You know, they use that a lot. But it means master or authority. And so he is in this moment saying, who are you, this authority that has the power to shine this light and, and, and disable me, so to speak? And Jesus says, it's me, you know. I, and what, what I glean out of that is that this is not the humble Jesus walking to the cross, but this is the Jesus in heaven who has authority over all things. This is Lord. This is Jesus in master mode, so to speak. And he's speaking to him and saying, you've gotten this wrong. There's some things that need to be straightened out. It says he arises, goes to the city, where his, you know, to, and he doesn't say anything, but they lead him by the hand and take him into the city. And then he doesn't, for three days, he doesn't eat or drink anything. Um, he's still in Pharisee mode. He moves into fasting, you know, going, i, I got to get this figured out. Have you ever fasted without water? My very first experience, uh, I, I had a batch of friends who were fasting. I, it was my first year out of college, and I was in a ministry situation, and fasting was pretty common there. And so I just said, okay, I'll do that, three days. Well, at the end of day two, I found out that most people use water. Uh, brutal, because what happens is, you know, as your system is drying out, all the toxins that are in your body, whether it be in the fat or the muscle or colon, what, you know, more detail than you need, it's, it's moving out, and so your kidneys and everything else begins to ache incredibly. And... Uh, in that, you know, the, the brutal side of fasting is on the front end because you eventually hit a stage where hunger is not a part of it. In fact, your mind feels very alert. And I assume that this, this guy is going, I need to hear something from God. And so he's fasting and just, you know, but it's a total fast. And, you know, they, they don't recommend that you go more than three days without water. It's just, you know, you can go weeks with water and no food. But uh, the idea of going long-term without water, well, you'll die. That's the, that's the short of it. So you got to be very, very careful in that kind of thing. So that said, you know, he's, he is, he's the person of zeal. He's the person of intensity. He's lived what he thought was a faultless life. And so he just steps into this gung-ho, going for it. And... Uh, he has a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come talk to him, and that's exactly what takes place. Now, um, Ananias has a vision from the Lord that prepares him for this, and he goes, here I am, Lord. You know, the, the saint, godly man, gets a vision. You're going, that's awesome. You know, and then he's told, I want you to go to a guy named Saul. He's over on this street, and and then Ananias does the craziest thing. He goes, Lord, I've heard stories about this guy. You know, do you understand who we're talking about? It's amazing that, you know, 
He has a vision from God. God's speaking to him, and he's going, you need to know something here. But truthfully, we do the same things, right? I mean, when we get an insight from the Lord or something that we're to step into and it's not like what we're used to hearing or not what we've been raised in, there's a tendency to just say, Ugh, you know, I must not know the full story. I must have missed this one. Must not have heard him right. Maybe it's Saul on a different street, you know. But it's just, anyway, God convinces him that he knows what he's talking about even though he's going to a bad man. Uh, he says, go, the Lord tells him, go, for he's my chosen instrument to carry out my name before the Gentiles. Okay, this is going a different direction. And kings and children of Israel, for I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the man that's been inflicting suffering is being told that he's going to suffer, but he's also being told that he's going to speak to people worldwide. Ananias does go to him and say, Brother Saul. So he did get the message. He did understand it. And then he walks him through the whole thing. He prays for him. His eyesight's restored. He introduces him to the Holy Spirit. He baptizes him. And then it says, as Saul, you know, once his eyesight's restored and things are right, he eats. It's time. Fast has been answered. Um, with that background, I want to address a couple of the passages that Paul writes, one in Philippians and one in Corinthians, with that experience in his beginning. Out of Philippians 3, he says, We are the, who are the circumcision, worshiping by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. He's going, you know, this... Circumcision was the introductory thing for Jews. I mean, young boy was circumcised on the eighth day. It was like saying, you're Jewish. This is who we are. You're part of the people group. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, this is one of the family members. Remember Rachel was the one loved by, by her husband? And he was one of the two sons born to that woman. And they, were, they had a special, unique place within the, the, the people of Israel. So he's saying, I'm from one of those good tribes, or one of the top tribes, so to speak. Hebrew of the Hebrews, and another spot it says he was trained by Gamaliel. So he was born in Tarsus, but when he received training as a young man, he'd gone to Jerusalem, sat under the best teacher of the day. So it's like, you know, one of our group going to Harvard or, you know, wherever that, you know, you're going, this is the best of the best. Or has the reputation. He says, I had that. As the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under law, blameless. It says, whatever gain I had counted, now count as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Whatever I had, it's not enough for the sake of Christ. So that tells how important knowing God is to him. But I was, as I was chewing on this, I was walking through some things. This man had lived a life exemplary in many ways. You know, brilliant scholar, zealous, and now all those things have to be turned into a godly place. When you and I come to the Lord, it's not that much different. One of the things that, that I felt like the Lord was speaking to me this week as I was chewing on this is that a lot of my activity through the years has been guilt-driven. My wife knows that the alarm goes off in the morning. If you're going to keep me in bed more than five minutes past that alarm, I'm, I'm functioning under guilt. I got to get up. You know, it was instilled in me. Now, is it a valuable thing to get up in the morning? Absolutely. You know, is it, is it valuable to have that discipline and that consistency, even health-wise? Yeah, it, it's a good thing. If it's guilt-driven, though, that is not necessarily a God thing, right? And it's not the true health that's available, We've struggled this over the years because she doesn't function in the same level of guilt that I do. It annoys me to no end. And yet I admire it on the other side going, how do you do that? You know, it's, yeah, <laughs> she rolls over. But it's not just getting up. But it's, it's that thing of, okay, in your family system, you know, you may have been driven into some very valuable behaviors, but if it's just a guilt pushing. It's not a good thing. Fear of others can do the same thing, right? <laughs> Some of you skinny girls, it's not health that you're chasing as much as fear of what others will say or a guilt that's been put on you or even a, a, a pride. And the, the challenge is, okay, health is a good thing, but how do we accomplish this in the Lord and dismiss the other? That's why I think he was 17 years kind of off by himself because there were numerous things to walk through that way. You know, it's just like, why are bulimia and anorexia so prevalent in our day? That's not health. It's not being driven by the Lord. It's not the kind of thing that you're going, I feel so great about this. No. It's a pushing and a driving that really is not being given by a God who loves you. And so true righteousness, so to speak, is going to have a different bent, even though it may look much the same when it's all said and done. Let's look at something else with this. I mean, he had been putting people to death, and so he's got to work through the guilt of that kind of thing, right? Right? A little hard being accepted among the group when you put to death some of the group earlier. 
But in our day, people come into the church and suddenly they have to say, you know what? Abortion is wrong. What am I going to do about this? How am I going to deal with the guilt in my heart when I truly embrace that this was a life? And then you go back to a Paul who's put people to death and apparently he got it taken care of and settled. And just like we've been, had the privilege of walking some through and healing in that facet, it's like, is there anything that's outside the scope of his ability to heal? No. Is there any guilt that's too great for God to release it from us? Is there any fear that can't be undone by the Lord? Is there any shame that he's unwilling to break off? No. And to step into full well-being in him, I mean, the idea of the Hebrew sense of peace is that it was more than just a calmness in the moment, but it was peace that spilled into every facet of life. So it was a peace about relationships. It was a peace about health. It was a peace about our mental well-being. All of that was encompassed in that idea. And so when we talk about a peace in the Lord, we're also talking about Him untangling the things of our lives that maybe were given to us through our families or through their culture that we live in. But there's an opportunity to truly be set free of these things. I was talking with Pat, and I was sharing a little bit of this, and she goes, you want to take care of that now? Because when you stand before the Lord, the things driven by guilt aren't going to be seen as, oh, that's wonderful what you got done. It doesn't have a spiritual impact. Even though it had the discipline connected and even though it, was, it stood you well in the, this culture and in the day, if you're standing before the Lord and he's going, I didn't inspire that. It's empty. And so we delude ourselves going, you know, I really am living for God right now. Just like Saul found out when he'd been putting people to death and dragging them off and suddenly realizes, this is wasted energy. It hasn't worked. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So again, just getting back into it and saying, what Christ does in regard to our lives is liberating in every facet. And the value of knowing Him exceeds anything that could be accomplished on this earth in our own strength. And the treasure that we have in Him exceeds anything that takes place today. And so we come back to this thing of saying, my sins have been washed away by Jesus Christ. You know, it's so core to our teaching, but sometimes it just loses its value because we, we fail to, to glimpse 
in the day when we get caught up in the self-righteousness, so to speak, and fail to realize, no, it's Him and, and knowing Him that, that really avails a well-being in our lives. He says that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may retain the resurrection of the dead. God had given him some insights even to suffering. You know, he is called into suffering in the original call for him. And so what, what he takes on, he's had to chew on it. You know, so what's this all about? And I mean, when you read the litany of what he went through, you're going, thank you, Jesus, that you didn't call me to that yet. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where, over and over, he, he, he bumps into things that are horrific. But he somehow, it doesn't, it doesn't undo him. Because he knows that this is valuable. But he's also saying, he suffered for me. I'm willing to suffer for him. He rose again to new life. He is going to take me into new life as well. And we have that strong confidence. And he carries that with him wherever he goes. Powerful thing. Now, one other passage in 1 Corinthians, kind of indicative of what he had pulled out of this experience. 1 Corinthians. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He's already stated in other passages, he says, I had the wisdom of this world. I did really well as a student. I had the position as a Pharisee and, a, and as a Benjamite. He's a, I had the power, so to speak. I had the letters to go into other. And he's, he's gone, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I had the things that not many of you had. The position. That said, I, you know, being born in noble birth, um, but he's going, it's not enough. Doesn't get you there. He says, most of you didn't have that privilege, but God chose that, chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He says, oh, even in your selection, you may not think of much of yourself. You might compare yourself to everyone else around and go, there is not much that I can do better than anyone else. There's much that, not much that I can point to that puts me in a better place than others. And the natural question is, well, why would God want me? But what Paul's saying is, that's just exactly what God has chosen to make a declaration about how wonderful he is and how powerful he is how wise he is. And so God chose things that, that we build up and just said, yeah, I don't need that. God chose the low and despised of the world, even the things that are not, to bring into nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He says, you're not going to stand before him and say, I got all this done. 
If anything, you're going to embrace, I've had a relationship with Christ. I've trusted in Him. And He's the one that has brought me to this place. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The things that we are trusting in have come to us through Christ, no other source. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, walking back through quickly. We don't always see others with God's eyes, do we? I mean, who would have thunk that Saul would have been the great apostle Paul? We just, we don't tend to see others with that kind of value. We don't necessarily even see ourselves with the value that God sees us with. And we often carry things that are not intended for us to carry. When we look at the Apostle Paul, we also have to recognize that antagonists that may be a part of our lives are not exempt from God encountering them or them having encounters with God. And maybe the best thing you can do when somebody's really giving you the business is say, God, let them have a Saul experience. Encounter them in a way that I can't get through to their hearts. You know, here's the man destroying others' lives, destroying good people's lives. And yet God picked him out and said, I'm talking to you. And he's got to go, Lord. (laughs) Finally, if you and I are going to stand before him and have anything to present at all, it's going to be done in a spiritual nature through Christ. It's not going to be done through our own power. It's not going to be done through guilt or shame or fear or anything else that you want to list. So it's very important that we begin to weed those things out of our lives and learn. The missionary stayed a missionary. The disciplined man stayed disciplined. But they took on a God bent, so to speak. The challenge for us is that when we address our God who is pure and we're not, it unravels us. You know, absolute purity frightens me because I I see myself for what I am. Yet in that moment, there's still this great, great privilege saying in spite of the things that are connected with my life, he's chose the foolishness of the world to confound the wise, and he's allowed me to participate through his son, Jesus. What an amazing honor that is. Lord, I pray that in this group, that those truths become alive to our hearts. I pray for ones that are wrestling with guilt and shame and fear, or a addictive habits or or patterns that really aren't honed in you. Give them a glimpse to see what they really are and then help them to see what they can become in you. 
Lord, transform our lives. We can stand before you and boast about your goodness and what you've done through us and in us. I took a shot this morning um, just in regard to skinny girls, but our culture is so caught up in body image that if you're a few pounds overweight, then you can feel guilt all the time, right? It's not just girls, it's guys too. I mean, very few of us even like what we see when we look in the mirror. And we're, we're always, you know, some are going, my big frame body is never going to allow me to be what the culture treats as pretty. And, and there's a, a shame sometimes connected with that. That's not God. You know, God knows you exactly as you are and loves you as you are. And so we have to come to terms with that. Now, there are times when he challenges us toward uh, living a healthier lifestyle, that's for sure. But that is not the full goal of what he has for your life. And there are some that need to be set free from that kind of shame or whatever it is. And it'd be good for us to pray that way this morning, even, okay? If you want prayer, um, <laughs> I realize it's embarrassing to even come forward. I, I don't know what to do about that. Uh, if you want God bad enough, I'd suggest to you that it doesn't really matter. But the other side of that is, He's going to meet you as you call out to him. Ask him what he wants. Maybe you go to someone else. Maybe you, I don't know. But there's an opportunity for freedom in this day. I'm going to pray for God's blessing. And then we're going to open it up for prayer and just um, take it where it goes. Your blessing rests on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover with joy the fullness of your salvation. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, washes away our sin, frees us from the trappings of our culture and our society. Lord, I ask as each one goes into the community that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day.